You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. coming. It's so nice to see everyone, some familiar faces and not so familiar faces. It's such a great turnout. It's so lovely to see everyone in this space and to be together. Um, Today we are having a conversation about the city and how we might engage with it and improve it in a variety of ways. When we speak about place and how we might better the built environment, an acknowledgement of the long history of where we are is really important. We acknowledge the traditional custodians and owners of this place, the peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the elders of this place, past, present and emerging, and their continuing connection to the land, waterways and culture. Sovereignty has yet to be ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. As we have this discussion, it would be great if we can all hold onto this sentiment of acknowledgement and also consider how it might be actioned beyond rhetoric through our engagements with the built environment and with place. So, my name is Lily DeSassio, and I am interested in the intersections of design, culture, politics, and marginality. I have a study background in anthropology, politics, and Italian language, and I'm entering into a Master of Architecture at the Melbourne School of Design. Across the way, over there, is my lovely co-mediator and co-curator, Woody. (laughs) My name's uh, Woody Smith, sorry, a bit loud. Um, I'm a student architect and graduate from Melbourne Uni with interests in urban design, public space and design history. Uh, Lily and I are both M Curators, which is an initiative run by the M Pavilion supporting young people who are interested in art programming. I want to thank our mentors, uh, Jen and Molly, and um, the M Pavilion team, and the other curators for supporting us and helping make this talk happen. Uh, For this conversation, we have a lovely group of multidisciplinary panellists, Rory Hyde, Maddie Miller, Andy Fergus, and Amelia Leavesley, who will introduce themselves in just a moment. Thank you all for joining us tonight. Um, So we'll start off by giving a bit of background on the topic and then Lily and I will ask a few questions to our panellists and the last 15 minutes uh, we'll open up to the the floor to you guys to ask some questions of your own. So please keep that in mind as we go. The basis for using the word repair came from a shared sense between Lily and I of our city being in disrepair as a result of the pandemic. In the short term, COVID has altered our urban way of life with vacant shops, empty skyscrapers characterising parts of Melbourne. Strains to our social fabric have changed our connotations around public space and the cracks in our relationship with the city seem as visible as ever. Um, As Woody and I looked deeper and had more conversations around this topic and getting ready for the talk, Um, we realise that in many ways um, the pandemic has really just pried open many of our city's existing wounds. Climate change, unchecked development and a tenuous connection to place have exposed our city's need for more meaningful design and engagement. So for our panellists, can I please ask that each of you introduce yourselves um, and then describe in your own lens what repair means to you in reference to our city? Um, And what does need repairing? Um, Feel free to use a different term that you think might better encapsulate what kind of action the city needs. Uh, If you want to go first. Shall I jump in? Thanks, Lily. Hi, everyone. My name's Rory Hyde. I am Associate Professor in Architecture and Curatorial Practice at the University of Melbourne. Does that sound okay? Good. Um, So... 
to answer your question, what does repair mean to me? I, I mean, one of the things that I look, see when I look around the city is the cultural incentives that we bake into the way that we live. And, you know, those can be really big things like, um, the, the, you know, the ways that we move around the city or the ways that we come together or the parks and common spaces that we decide to build through our um, governments and so on. But it can also come down to really little things like um, incentives for commercial vehicles. Have you noticed how many people are driving these Ford Rangers in like the last two years? It's, it's, and it's because they get a tax break because it's a commercial vehicle. And you think, okay, someone's designed this system that incentivizes us to drive these enormous vehicles um, unnecessarily. So I'm really interested in what are those little levers that we can pull that might incentivize us to make different kinds of choices and different kinds of design uh, in the city. It's, and you might call that strategic design, um, but it's, it's thinking about the city not just as a built fabric, but as a, as a series of um, systems which guide our cultural behaviour and decisions. Yes, go next, Andy. Thank you. I'm Andy Fergus. I'm an urban designer. I'm the uh, head of urban design at Assemble Communities uh, an ethical developer in Melbourne and also have my own practice and hold a number of other um, roles, um, essentially in design agency, which sort of leads me to what I'm really interested in talking on about this evening, which is this idea, if we think about repair and accept that something therefore is broken that requires repair, um, what is the reason for this? And we, we had some really fantastic discussions as a group in the lead up to this event about um, you know, so much was promised at the end of COVID of, oh, you know, things will be different, there's all these possibilities, but we have to make them happen. They don't happen. They don't happen because of the normal operation of financial markets. They don't happen by the normal operation of government. So I'm, I'm very interested in the things that I perceive to be broken in the city stemming from a disconnect between um, sort of individuals, civil society and, and government, and the way in which we represent ourselves beyond... Um, participatory democracy, the ballot box democracy, and how we engage in cities uh, much more proactively. Um, so I'm really interested in teasing out a conversation around what are the preconditions to repair, what might allow all these great design possibilities that are not being realised now because the settings aren't right to allow them to occur. So that's what I'm interested in. Cool. Thanks so much. Maddie? Uh, hi, everybody. My name's Maddie. I'm a Wamuli woman of the Darug Nation, so my traditional lands are uh, just below the Blue Mountains in Sydney. And so a lot of my uh, ancestral homelands are heavily colonised and have become cities themselves. Um, but I've always lived in, in Melbourne. I'm um, not necessarily a design person. I'm an archaeologist, so I deal with cities that are long destroyed. Um, so maybe if we're thinking about our city need to, needs to be repaired, I can tell you a little bit about cities that haven't been repaired. Um, but I guess my interest uh, in, in this discussion is really thinking about um, repair as a word that suggests that there was a state in which to return to, that there was a state which we can repair a place to. Um, but from my perspective, cities are inherently broken. Um, they don't provide care and they don't provide nourishment. And um, cities are located on, on country, on sacred country, and often that's forgotten. And that's not part of the conversation of urban design. And that's not a, a goal of urban design or placemaking is care for country. And so I think if we're thinking about repairing the city or what are we looking for in the future, we need to take a step back and think about what this place is, what it needs and what its requirements are as its own entity, as country that is a living being. Um, yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. And Amelia? Uh, hi, everyone. My name's Amelia Leavesley. I'm a PhD researcher at the Melbourne School of Design, Melbourne University. Um, I specialise in urban climate policy and sustainability transitions. Um, I was here today to talk about an urban ecology lens, but given the state of the transport system that got me here, apologies, I was late. I almost want to talk about sustainable transport systems. Um, but in the vein of the talk today, I... 
would like to challenge the concept of repair uh, because from uh, my backgrounds in civil engineering and environmental studies and um, when we think about repair, we think about objects that are broken. I would like to challenge that and suggest a concept of recover the city uh, where we see the city as a living system. Um, it is very much alive um, and it impacts us as much as we impact it. And so I think about this concept of repair as, you know, the, for, well, for a long time, I would say, but the last few years in particular, the city has been unwell. Uh, we haven't been taking care of it. Um, and it's been it's impacted quite significantly by the lockdowns and things. And so we look at the urban ecology within the city as a, a metaphor um, for the life and the place. And we look at recovering the city as if we would look at recovering ourselves Coming out of the pandemic, we think about, you know, all these things that happened and how we were all locked down and how much we suffered and how much the city suffered. And so I encourage you to think about repairing or recovering the city as if it's been unwell and how you would recover a person. Thank you. Um, so Andy, and I, and I think Maddie and Amelia, you could probably both answer this as well. Um, when we use the word repair, um, there is a notion of restoring something to its previous state. And as mentioned earlier, uh, the pandemic seems to have just amplified um, some existing problems. Should we forget about returning to pre-pandemic ways and start, start, sorry, and start doing things differently? Is there opportunity to do so? I'm, I'm happy to answer that. <laughs> um, I think that there was a lot of talk, particularly in political circles, about bouncing back, you know, bouncing back to great levels of aviation fuel use and uh, levels of pollution that we had. Um, carbon emissions from our cities is, is sort of obviously a huge challenge there. But I also think in thinking about how we return from this trauma, essentially, to our society, um, there are things that might be and there are things that already are. The change to work patterns has happened. It's not going to be something that returns back fully. There are going to be changes in the way people live and move throughout cities. People are going to, within certain professions, have a greater degree of discretion over how they move through and use the city. So I think we need to, to be ahead of the curve. We need to always look at the trajectory of what is changing anyway. And there's increasingly great research and data around these aspects of our cities that have transformed. I mean, as an example, we temporarily ended poverty uh, as a result of um, changes to New Start and, and various other welfare measures that were used. We had hotel systems repurposed for accommodation of the homeless community. Um, we did it for a short period of time, but it was never conceived of as something that we might invest in in the long term. So there's extraordinary sort of um, potent opportunities that are seen there of how we might return. But I think also whenever we have these shocks to our society, there's a long history of having these points of reflection with which to have a new lens on, on what was normal previously. And I think we've been given this extraordinary and sometimes very lonely time to be alert to sort of think through what's occurring within, within our cities and think about what the alternatives might be. So I think we're really poised um, with a more reflective society who are more aware of how we used green space um, you know, this, the elements that were lacking from our urban environment, what care was lacking, what's happened to our health systems in order to be more assertive. Um, but I guess my key point is that none of these reflections amount to anything um, without action. So uh, in thinking about um, this, this kind of act of repair, um, I again come back to let's look at the preconditions that enabled those things to occur on a temporary basis and let's start to talk about what it would mean um, to, to direct these long-term changes that we think are necessary in our cities. Um, and think about how we actually engage with that. Is it through local community groups? Is about, you know, literally speaking to a, a member of parliament, is about submitting to an inquiry from the Productivity Commission, you know, actually engaging with the apparatus of power rather than having, you know, Carlton latte conversations. <laughs> I would like to respond, if that's okay. Um, Andy, that was, yeah, really interesting. It made me think about uh, scales of action and, and what you and I can do as well as, you know, the, the community groups and the legislators. But I, I was reflecting a lot during the lockdown. I mean, we had a lot of time to reflect, not much else to do. Um, and I was thinking about, you know, this is a very unique time in our lives where we've suddenly slowed down. Um, we've really redefined the meaning of time and what we do with our time, you know, from um, 
spending a lot more time locally, walking around the streets, and also with the way the city responded with less car traffic, led, leading to a lot less pollution, a lot less noise pollution, as well as sort of uh, chemical pollution. We saw a lot more sort of biodiversity start to re-emerge from the cracks and make homes in this city that we were living in them with. And suddenly we had the opportunity to watch them and it was sort of like, wow, isn't this interesting? And it makes me question, you know, which, which of these activities do we want to hold on to um, to avoid bouncing back? I think, as you said, I think we don't want to bounce back. We want to grow back. We want to grow bigger and better. Maybe not bigger, but stronger. And I think that... Uh, there's a French anthropologist and philosopher, Bruno Latour, who talks a lot about this idea of slowing down reasoning and rethinking the way we live in place. And I actually Googled the, the uh, meaning of livability. What's the definition? It's like to live in a place. So I think when we recover, we think about what does it mean to live in place? What activities do we want to hold on to that served us during the lockdown and maybe will serve us in our lives and what does that look like? And then what do we want to bring back? You know, we were so isolated for a long time. The city was so isolated for a long time. So, yeah, I encourage you to think about your own lives and, and how they've changed and what you want to keep from the lockdowns before they become just a distant memory. Thanks very much. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Um, Yeah. Um, did anyone want to respond to that as well? Well, we're all good. Okay, beautiful. Um, yeah, maybe Rory or Maddie can speak to this question. Yep. Um, just in terms, I think, getting back to the kind of political rhetoric um, that Andy was speaking about of bouncing back, um, and we do kind of hear about Melbourne as being, you know, one of the most livable cities in the world, um, and sometimes it feels like it's almost... Um, a term used to kind of divert our attention away from some of the big issues that we are facing as a city or as a society. Um, in what ways are we behind? And, you know, compare them to other cities or, you know, look at other examples that where we're, we can maybe look to, uh, look to, to improve. Um, and, yeah, like how, like what actions do we need to take tangibly to improve as well? Thanks, Maddie. Um, yeah, really good question. This livable city thing is, I think it's amazing and fantastic uh, and terrifying. I mean, you can imagine, you know, uh, Tyler Brule from Monocle magazine uh, coming to a conference for three days and, you know, staying in the Western and going to Jeff Shed and having a, going on a Yarra cruise and then going back to the airport and, and saying, five stars, top of the list. <laughs> Melbourne, most livable city. And it's like, you can drive for an hour on the Monash and you're still in suburbia. You know, there's this other city, I'm sure you're all familiar with it. It's beyond postcode 3000. The trams don't go there. It's crazy out there. It goes on and on and on. <laughs> and that is not a, the world's most livable city. So I, I guess to pick up on Andy, Amelia, on what everybody said, you know, this slowing down is a great... I think, moment to relocalise, especially to relocalise the suburbs. And that's one of the things I'm really interested in at the moment is to say, okay, what does it mean? I mean, I think the 15-minute city, which is one of these sort of planning um, ideas that's very popular at the moment, which is, um, I mean, it's, there's things to criticise, but fundamentally I think it's a good idea, which is that everything that you need, your schools, your shops, your um, health, your hospital, your everything, is within 15 minutes of... Um, public transportation, so either walking or bus or whatever um, radius of your of where you live, um, and so you know, let the, if you were to do that to the outer suburbs, this really would be the world's most livable city. I think it would be an incredible place, and COVID's shown kind of how that could happen. Working from home. We give attention and care. I mean, what was your definition, Amelia, of livability is living here. So we start to, we start to, I guess, you know, look after the place that we're in and our neighbours and our children. And so that I find that a really exciting vision that can come out of these last two years is a relocalisation of the suburbs and a kind of concentration of goodness at a local level, but which also might mean a distribution or a decentralisation of goodness from the city, because at the moment it's sort of like this, 
You know, I mean, you've got MPV in here, we're going to have the NGV pavilion here. <laughs> it's like within 50 metre radius, you've got three architecture pavilions. Well, maybe we should put one in Coburg. Maybe we should put one um, somewhere else and have these discussions there too. Okay, super interesting. So it's about um, like localised action, so community action and engagement of people and individuals, but also the onus is on government and on planners to be able to place... Um, you know, culture or, um, you know, public amenities and et cetera um, in, like, satellite suburbs? Yeah, I mean, I think to, to Andy's point about what the mechanisms are for making that um, happen, it might be to recognise that that was happening anyway, sort of as a result of this crisis. You know, nobody wanted to be locked down. Nobody wanted to be confined to their 5Ks. But actually, if we... if How would you make it that you that it would be good to be locked down in your 5Ks, that you had everything there, then actually it might not have been such a punishment. It might have been this amazing thing where you've actually made new friends and you're, you, you don't have to quit your job in order to take your kids to school, you know, which is a real thing if you've got a one-hour commute. You just simply can't work and do the school run. But if you could do that within your 15-minute zone and you had work-from-home hubs in every street... Then we've designed a kind of new city out of the prototyping that's happened in the last two years. But we've got to like recognise the lessons that we that we've learned um, without bouncing back or whatever it's called. Build back better. No, to say <laughs> these are the good bits, these are the bad bits. Everybody dying bad. Everybody kind of like reorganising the um, geography of their lives. Uh, um, good. Okay, cool. Can I pick on something? Yeah. Just, oh. just this, this, not the, this, the comment that onus is on government. I think this is something that culturally we have a real problem with um, in Australia more broadly is this idea of what we do and what government does. And I think this doesn't reflect the ideology of our government. Even Victoria, a relatively progressive government, uh, still operates on a neoliberal business model, essentially, as, as all of local governments, state governments and federal governments do. And I think there's something really important to point out with the suburbs, which is that it's an incredibly bizarre uh, public policy proposition. So the suburbs are built entirely with private investment, out of which the cross-subsidy... So, so, sorry, I, I might take a, few, a minute to do this, but like, basically developer builds roads, infrastructure, maybe a park, a bunch of stuff to liberate plots, which they can sell for a profit, which cross-subsidises all the things they just built, yeah? It's not funded by an act of, uh, act of, of government. What do you do then when it's complete? <laughs> when you come back in 20 years' time, there is no... The, the money that is paid in rates in a court bowl in Roeville does not go to the court bowl in Roeville, right? It goes to the leisure centre in Wontona. It goes to the upgrades of a footpath a kilometre away. It, the rates are never enough to, just, to, to substantiate that repair that we want on a local basis. So I think I'm really interested in questioning that um, government will do it, government will do it. What can we do? Um, and what are those tiers that, um, at which action can occur to, to enable these sorts of things we're doing? So I just, that's a long way of picking on the, the onus is on government because I think that's too easy and it creates this distance between us and them. You could be, you know, your career trajectory might put you in government in two years' time. You know, you never know, right? So who, what is government, what is us, and what are our obligations to uh, engage across that space? Sorry. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. Thank you. That's a good bone to pick. I guess there's that feeling of, you know, our understanding of what we feel government should be doing um, and whether that's coming from ignorance or a lack of understanding of how the system works. But this feeling that we trust the government to be doing the right thing um, and, you know, they could be doing the right thing, um, but we also could be doing more to enact change on a ground level as well. Yeah. Um, Maddie, did you want to um, speak to anything? Did you want me to repeat the question or did you have anything to respond to from Rory? <laughs> um, I guess I was just reflecting on how important it's been over the past two years to have green space near you, to have something green and nature near you and how many people did not have that available to them, how many people in that 5K really didn't have a park or somewhere accessible um, for them to visit. And so thinking about the most livable city, what I'm interested in is the most living city. You know, what are the inherent rights of plants and animals to exist within our cities? Um, and, you know, on a micro level, that just might be what 
I mean, I'm looking around and most of us are probably renters, but what are we planting in our gardens? Um, <laughs> I mean, demographic, right? <laughs> um, but if you own a home, congratulations. Well done. I would love to be you. Thank your parents. <laughs> Thank your parents uh, and pay the rent. Um, yeah, but... I guess, you know, that livable city is really servicing us, us as humans. It's us over everything else. Um, and it's, I think, an incredibly selfish way of thinking about the way in which we live. And I think that this is why we are facing climate change and this is why all these things are happening um, in terms of ecological collapse. And so if we, you know, I'm not saying tear down the city, um, Maybe. Um, <laughs> but what is the ways in which we can give back? What are the ways in which we respect that there are other, you know, beings here that deserve a place, not just us? Um, and so I think moving forward, thinking, and, you know, we have benefits from that, like accessing green space and being with country or nature or however you would like to describe it, um, you know, has benefits for your mental health. Many times during lockdown, you know, it's a real solace for me to be able to walk down to the park. And depending on the radius that I was allowed to walk, sometimes that was by the Beerung, and that's incredibly healing. Um, even though looking at the Beerung and seeing how sick it is, it still gives me strength and hope. And so, um, yeah, I'd like to see a living city. Okay, brilliant. And do you have any ideas of what that might look like tangibly, like um, like from a community level, like, I don't know, community gardens or advocating for greater greener space or for storytelling and, yeah. you know, acknowledging country and stuff like that? I think, I mean, I think it can happen in a million different ways and I think that's what's really lovely. And I think from, you know, a design practitioner perspective, it's thinking about that in your work from an urban planner or, um, you know, a developer perspective, it's, it's making space um, for country. And I think things like giving the Birrung, um its rights and thinking about those types of things, and we're seeing this sort of stuff happen in Aotearoa, um, you know, what does that then mean for the city? If, if a waterway has a right to exist, you know, can we then build a bridge over it? Can we then pave over it? What is what does that mean? I think is really exciting. Yeah, like by decentering the human and centering the like ecological space. That's um, not even decentering the human and centering eco ecology. It's centering our relationship with each other. You know. Okay, interesting. Sorry, can I just respond to something that Maddie said? I think uh, I agree completely. I think that um, there's more more anthropologists. I'm obviously not a designer. Um, an anthropologist, Donna Haraway, talks about this concept of more than human, and I think this the anthropomorphism, this like human-centered thinking that we uh, it's kind of an affliction of our species. <laughs> we can't help it. But uh, Donna Haraway talks about this idea of looking at the world around us is more than us rather than less than us. And it's this idea of destabilising our, our need to serve ourselves as a species first and, and centering our relationship with the world around us as, as the start. And I think that speaks, you know, asked, Lily asked, you know, what, what can we do tangibly? And I think well, we've already started doing it, actually. You know, I've, I saw more garden beds pop up during the lockdowns. I saw more people picking up rubbish, taking care of local spaces. I saw the council, um, you know, installing more bike paths so that we can actually slow down and change the way we move through the city. And, and I really want to see those sort of things where we, we actually do slow down and think about our relationship with the world around us, our relationship with our home, which Melbourne is, and how we can change that going forward and, and keep the things, as I said, that uh, were good about the lockdown. Can I add something else to that? I think it's really interesting also to think about this idea of how um, how we are going to mobilise change. And you've both just touched on this idea of um, the environments that are conducive for us being together and on what terms. How do we build tolerance? How do we build understanding? How do we build consensus and make decisions together? I think I'm kind of vehemently against this idea that you can solve any sort of environmental challenge with a top-down policy initiative. I think um, it's inherently a cultural ph phenomenon rather than a scientific problem. It's kind of a human problem. Um, but we are at our best 
when we act collectively um, throughout history and, and still. So I'm really interested in this idea of these small things, these community gardens or, you know, Rory's done a lot of work um, looking in you know, post-global financial crisis Europe when the community started doing small initiatives. You can't measure their you know, carbon sequestration impact on the globe, but that doesn't matter. These people are becoming political and they're learning skills of how to participate and navigate how to get finance, how to get grants, how to influence their local politicians. And those skills from these incredibly small acts of repair or interventions in our environment actually reskill us in the much bigger decisions that influence our city. So I wouldn't, it's not this folk little tinkering around the edges, it's actually a, a kind of learning like a child uh, building towards being a fully fledged civil, um, civic participant. Um, Amelia, you mentioned uh, last week in our discussion about um, guerrilla gardening. And I was just wondering um, if you could just explain what that is and what, what does it actually do? What sort of benefits does it provide? Um, yeah. Yes, I'm a big fan of guerrilla gardening. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I'm not yet a participant, but I hope to be one day. Um, so guerrilla gardening is this concept that um, it questions public space and who has rights to change it. And it sort of emerged, I think, on the back of... Um, some local residents, I can't remember exactly which city, uh, who wanted to uh, green their neighbourhood and they tried lobbying the government and, you know, local government and they sort of... Change wasn't happening quick enough for them. So overnight they uh, took over a roundabout uh, that was just paved. They ripped up the paving and put in a garden and then the next day, <laughs> hey, presto, there was a garden there. So this, it's this idea of uh, challenging who has rights to public space and who has rights to care for place, I guess, in a, in a very tangible, very practical way. And I think if you think about guerrilla gardening, I sort of see it even just on the streets of Melbourne. I live in, uh, lucky enough to live in Abbotsford, um, right near the Birrarung, and I see uh, a lot of people who I think have lived there for a while and have actually made the place their own, and that's has sort of spilled out onto the sidewalk, if you will. Um, you sort of see them, like, planting things around the street trees instead of just, you know, you've seen those square-cut trees that are basically prisons for the trees. <laughs> um, but they've, you know, put some greenery around and, and they've put, you know, little bench seats. And I've seen that uh, the city of Yarra has responded and said, okay, well, if you want to plant things on the streets, we'll give you a veggie box. We'll charge you 60 bucks a year to rent it. Uh, and there's a whole lot of things to follow. But it's this concept of the public as placemakers where you can actually change space around you beyond the, you know, the bounds of your primarily rented property um, and I think that that really sort of, I think it just tears open um, preconceived ideas of what uh, regulation is and what this, like who governs the city and the, and that's, you know, what Andy was saying that we can become agents of change our, in our own neighbourhood and even further beyond. And I've seen these guerrilla gardening teams essentially just like, they don't necessarily live in place, but they just sort of go and change it. Um, that has questions for, like, who they've asked uh, in terms of who lives there. But, you know, it's just this idea of rethinking what we can do to take care of our place and what kind of place we want to live in and how we can make that happen beyond just, you know, regulation changes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, Maddie, I was wondering what do you think uh, needs to change in the way we see the city? I know you've touched on that a bit already, but... Um, what new or formerly unacknowledged ways of thinking about the city um, need to be explored in our education system and public discourse? Yeah. Um, so I worked... I'm currently at um, the University of Melbourne, but I worked as an archaeologist for a long time and I worked a lot in the city of Melbourne um, within the hodl grid itself, maybe 20 or so, 30 sites. And, you know, beneath all of the buildings that we see today in the city of Melbourne, well, most of them, um, beneath them is these layers of country. And, you know, um, maybe this is because I was a, a little emo teenager hanging out on the steps of Flinders Street Station, but um, there was the Maccas just there on Swanson Street. And then that was um, just um, demolished as part of the metro tunnel project, we did a big excavation there and, um, you know, we found uh, like an 1890s dentist with teeth still down the um, drains, 
gross. Um, and we found an 1840s kitchen. But beneath all of that, hundreds and hundreds of stone tools. And we found evidence of country that had been here for millennia and people who had been here gathering just like I did as a grotty little teenager in this place. Um, and so that sort of continuum of people coming here, of people doing things is, is evident all through the city. The MCG was a place where Marngrook and other games were played always and now it's where we play our games. Um, the Just near um, Bishop's Court in East Melbourne, up in um, Footscray uh, Gardens, um, Fitzgray, yeah, that's, I, I literally, I got married there a month ago, you think I'd remember that, um, but that was a ceremony ground and, I mean, yeah, I just got married there, so there was another ceremony, so these places that we um, have in our current world that we know where we have these things that happen have always actually been happening here, and so that resonance of time, of place, I think is something that we should all be knowing and celebrating and talking about and that also then can inform the future and it can inform these new suburbs and these new developments thinking about what was happening here and why it was happening here and why that's appropriate like how great if we always build our footy ovals where we've always played footy how great if our schools and our community places are located where community always met and communed with country and so you know, these types of things, these, like, long, um, you know, millennia worth of, of placemaking, of being on country are still here, like, still underneath probably where we're sitting. Who the hell knows, you know? Um, well, me, because I'm an archaeologist. I'll dig it up later. Um, but, yeah, so I think that's something that's really important. I think, you know, everybody who comes here, who lives here, who visits here should be aware of, of, of that tradition and be, should be proud of it. Oh, beautiful, thank you. Um, I'm just cognizant of time, um, but we've only got a couple more questions left and then you guys will have some time to ask your own questions. Um, but for Rory, um, we wanted to ask what are some ways people can engage on an individual level and for you to kind of explain or elaborate on how important self-initiated roles are in the transformation of the city. And I feel like, Andy, you've spoken on this as well. Um, but if Rory wants to start. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think that the we, we tend to forget that that's how Melbourne is built. <laughs> you know, just this morning I was reading this wonderful book called Car Wars, which tells the story of how... Um, you know, Melbourne has adopted the car and resisted it in various ways. The, the community of Albert Park, South Melbourne, Port Melbourne, did a 1,500-day vigil. What is that, like four and a half, four years, five years, to protect the community playground in Albert Park when they were building a racetrack for Formula One. They were there for five years to save this, um, what we call the Pirate Park, I take my daughter there every weekend, didn't, never knew this story, never knew how hard that place had been fought for. Um, and I'm sure that there's, you know, right, everywhere you look, there's a story like that of people using their own agency and power to um, declare what kind of a city that they want. Um, and that's how cities are made. And those stories get immediately forgotten or we take them for granted or we just visit the Pirate Park and we open up our sandwiches and you know, go on the swings and go home. But people fought for five years to, get, to keep that place for when Jeff Kennett wanted to have Formula One cars there. So, you know, there, I, there's these competing interests. And, I, and at the moment, the, I'm really worried because the, I guess the pendulum's swinging so far in one direction. Uh, you know, yesterday I read in the paper that Labor are promising to build freeways as a, as a vote winner. And you think, okay, well, when both the major parties are agreed on that, what, there's no other future for this city, is there? You know, that, that's it, that's done. The more freeways we build, the more cars we have, the more we distribute ourselves from each other, the less we can connect to place, to country even. You know, that, and, it's become, and that's just, become, I guess, eats its way into the psyche of all of us citizens of how we operate and navigate and live 
within a place. So I worry that there's not a, that actually those counter voices don't actually have enough um, of a platform at the moment. And um, you know these kinds of discussions are great, and we see this. I'm really excited about the rise of independent candidates, and I do think politics is really important. Um, and but those independents all came from people who cared about these types of issues. You know, there's a straight line from. I want to save this playground to um, I need to exercise power in this way. So I, I, I think that um, we can't take that stuff for granted. And, and yeah, amazing opportunities for all of us. I think there's something really interesting that's come out of um, the last thing that's been said by everyone of how we position ourselves in a longer, you know, perhaps evolutionary bio, biology sort of setting. You know, how do we conceive of ourselves as contemporary people and, you know, the idea of continuity to read the layers of country and to learn, you know, if we want to fix education, we need to learn how to read country. We need to understand how our cities relate to it, a, a con continuity of, of cultural landscapes. But equally, we need to understand what has worked in the past. Um, Lewis Mumford speaks of this idea of post-historic man, which I'm still sort of getting my head around, which is this idea of, you know, everything being about the novel and about entertainment and the sort of disconnect of history as a conception of how we might think about the future. And I think it's really interesting to look back on Melbourne's history and, and think about counter-narratives. You know, like, how do we define ourselves? I mean, maybe even as Australians, you know, is women's suffrage the thing that we sort of hang our hat on as in, of incredible cultural pride? Um, you know, is the universal vote, the compulsory vote, something that we're proud or about, or is it eight-hour day? Yeah, or is it Paul Hogan? You know, like I guess there's these, <laughs> there's there's a whole other story to go in there about um, violent masculinity and film arising um, at key points in our history. But um, Mad Max. <laughs> But essentially this idea of, you know, what can we learn from uh, the Crows? Has anyone heard of um, the Crows who were incredibly uh, Ruth and Maury Crow? No, that's deeply upsetting <laughs> because these are incredibly important people who were fighting against freeways, fighting for social housing, talking about density in the 1970s and did influence a number of developments around Melbourne. Every time you cycle down Canning Street or move through Fitzroy and there's not a car coming the other way, that was done by bicycle users groups in the 1980s who redirected traffic to ensure those neighbourhoods remained safe. We, have this we, can, we can write our own story of what we choose to focus on and I think that if we forget history actually so we conveniently forget these tactics of how we can actually influence outcomes. I mean, look up Eastern Freeway 1970s proposal and you'll find burnt-out car bodies closing Alexander Parade to protest against the freeway moving through a neighbourhood. We've done this before and we can, and I think the more disconnected we get from um, a belief in how we can influence, the easier it is for government and, by extension, vested private interests that influence government to run roughshod over the city. So we need, we need to actually em enable or empower our politicians to make the right decision by being equally present uh, when decisions are being made. Wonderful. Thank you both. They were great answers. Um, um, do you think we should open up for questions from the audience? Or? Maybe. Do you want to quickly, we'll just do a quick run through of that last. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, trying to be um, concise, um, I was wondering, could you all please just give a, a snapshot of um, what you think the future of the city looks like, in your opinion? Um, or also just f feel free to sum up um, some of the more imp most important points that um, have been made tonight. All right, be concise. Hmm. Okay. Um, I think for me it's... The city that breathes. I think we we take uh, air for granted a lot, and I think um, if we prioritise fresh air, fresh water, clean spaces that are alive, you know, and we support walks of life that are not human, that are more than human, um, and also Green Elizabeth Street. That is my personal project. <laughs> we will get all cars off Elizabeth Street, please and thank you, um, and swim in the Yarra. That's what I would like to see. That's very Melbourne-centric. That's the Melbourne I know. Um, but hopefully someone else can shed some light on other forms of Melbourne. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really... Uh, it's a difficult question to answer. What is the future of Melbourne? And, and what is the future in 10 years, 20 years, 200 years? Um, I don't really know. I think we're at a, a really interesting, potentially scary, potentially wonderful point in history. Um, but... Yeah, like, what do I hope? 
the city looks like is perhaps very different than what it will look like. Um, but what I hope that it looks like is, is a city that does prioritise, um, you know, that, that people-country connection and that it does, um, you know, give space for country. I think that's really important and, and beyond the sort of the, the harsh huddle grid, um, how do we then connect in our places um, in suburbia, you know, how, do, how, does, how does that work? Um, and I think especially disadvantaged communities and, and new communities, um, that connection into nature is really important and then we're not blocking out waterways and we're not blocking out pathways for, for animals and for plants is really important. I feel like in my current job, I spend too much time in the weeds to step back and answer such a broad question. But maybe um, rather than the physical form the city might take, I'm, I see a future of a sort of reorganisation of government and its purpose and the degrees to which decisions are made by or projects are initiated by the community. Um, I think, it, I don't know if anyone's read um, uh, Jess Scully's book, Glimpses of Utopia. Has anyone read that, Rory? Anyone else? No, okay, there's another one for your reading list. But I think there's some really incredible examples of, of blending kind of, you know, um, the building of connections between people and trust and ability to make decisions and also the use of technology to augment that when we can't be together. Um, and how can we start to reposition this role of representation as this arm's length government versus a government that represents us? I'd love to feel confident about the decisions that are being made in our city, like this freeway. I, you know, I spoke to a friend recently who's not in urbanism. He lives in Copenhagen. He's like, it's really incredible to be in a city where I feel like something is being done. I feel like I'm part of the momentum. My friends are doing interesting things that are contributing to something good. And I didn't realise until he said that how much I long for that. Um, and how, we can, you know, how can we be this incredibly confident city where we're putting um, you know, one foot in front of the other in the right direction? And I, I see all of that to come back to how we sort of um, demand that. Um, yeah, I guess that would probably be part of the answer. And the second is how do we actually engage residents um, more actively in the making of the city as well. So I think, you know, I can't ignore, you know, 10 years of visiting many cities around the world and consistently the best new pieces of city were made by the people who use the city rather than the investors who, you know, fill their balance sheets on behalf of some speculative other. So I think through the sort of pathway I've outlined, I hope that we can create more space um, for people to make the kinds of cities we need rather than the one that um, real estate might tell us that we, we think we need. Beautiful, thank you. Thanks, Lily. I'll build on Andy's answer, which I think is really spot on. Um, maybe it's a shift from, hopeful, well, I hope it can be a shift from private luxury to public luxury. You know, at the moment we have this very clear boundary on what's ours and what's theirs. And if we could blur that, as in start to, we don't, not everybody needs a swimming pool or, <laughs> you know, uh, al fresco. What if we put all of them together and we put them in the street and we could have something that was a town hall, you know? So it's sort of blurring of, a, of our individual um, concentrations into a public generosity, public pools, public halls, public... I know it sounds very nostalgic for the welfare state, but it's a sort of... I think that blurring of private and public can extend to other things. It can go, operate vertically and you know, fewer hard surfaces, let the water go into the land, let it um, regenerate, let things grow up out of it. Um, so I, I do think that that blurring as a sort of cultural design, technical and almost spiritual attitude to living is where we could get to. Beautiful. Thank you all. They were great last responses. Thanks so much. Um, so now we're going to move to questions from the audience. Um, so, yeah, you can direct them to everyone or direct them to someone in particular. Um, but, yeah, we'll get Felix to help me with this. Definitely the way that cities need to start moving out with urban sprawl and everything. 
our CBD taking on, especially when there is like so much private interest in keeping people and money centralised. Um, I'm interested, like all of these concepts we're talking about, greening and living cities. How do we see the you know postcode 3000 playing out in this kind of new model of our city planning and, and place making? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Rory. Are we through Sorry. I can I can repeat it. Yeah. Oh, we can, I, can, I can repeat it. What happens to postcode three thousand if we're decentralising? <laughs> I hope I did it justice. I, do you mind if I reply? Um, I think it's a, a really great great question, and actually one of the um, I guess flashpoints of this that's happening at the moment is Shell House, so the Harry Seidler building on the corner. Um, and there's a development proposed for the back area, which is a sort of garden. It's a public space. And the owner of the building wants to basically double their floor area to, you know, have more office space in the tower. And I, my opinion is that we need more public space in the city, actually. We need more gardens in the city. And if we can, again, take an attitude which is not just about our own title, territory, but about what makes a good city, then that kind of place would actually imp improve the quality of all the buildings around it and we need to be protecting those things. So I do think that maybe there's less development in the city and there might be more gardens and that would make the city better and it would actually improve the value of the thing, you know, to use their logic. I don't like to do it too often but to just play their game for a moment. It would be better for you guys if you had more parks in the city. Every, actually, those apartments would be nicer because they'd have somewhere to go. So don't overdo it. <laughs> that would be my approach to 3,000. But um, I don't know. It's, it's very hard when you look at all the empty shops. I don't know if you guys want to respond to the street level. I, there's sort of a planning term called hub and spoke model. Um, and I think personally, I think that's the future of the city. Um, where if you think about a bike wheel, the city's in the middle of the wheel, it's the axle, and then everything sort of radiates from that. I think that, you know, what happens to postcode 3000 if we decentralise, I think it becomes more of a transitional space. It's less about coming and congregating and then everyone goes home and gets stuck on the M1 for two hours because there's a traffic jam. It's more about well, I guess it needs to re-identify itself. Really. I, I would put the onus on Coast Code 3000. You've had a lot of time to, you know, be the centre of attention, but now, you know, thinking about, yeah, like renaturing the city, like what kind of principles do we use to design our neighbourhoods? Like is Post Code 3000 just another neighbourhood? Is it, you know, sort of, I guess it's really about flowing power out <laughs> in the concept of, you know, space design and who's got rights to that, but also resources and, and people you think about, you know, it's just a change of flow and, uh, you know, it's it's obviously heartbreaking to see all the businesses that have suffered, especially in the CBD, as we've changed our work patterns and working more from home. And I, I don't have an answer for how to support the people that will be affected by this transition, but I really think it's necessary. Can we stay on this topic? <laughs> Are we allowed? Yeah. Um, yeah, look, I, I think your comment there of sort of it's a much-needed competition for the city is incredibly important. I think Melbourne, uh, in my opinion, CBD in sort of 2008 to 2010 was an incredibly extraordinary place. There was space available for things to happen. There were a mix of rents. Um, the city's become kind of full of investment. Um, so there isn't the space for this kind of experimentation to occur. The other thing is we often talk about postcode 3000. The ownership of the city was dramatic. I'm answering this through history, but that's how I work. Um, so the, the ownership of the city in postcode 3000 were lots of individual owners of buildings. Now the city is owned by real estate investment trusts, superannuation firms and global private equity firms. So they don't respond tomorrow to what happens today. They have a longer time horizon for their investment. They think very differently. That's quite scary for cities because cities do become safety deposit boxes as you know, Saskia Sassen and others have talked about for many, many years. So I think this kind of um, fear around what the future of the city, will, the central city will be is incredibly healthy in thinking about what we should prioritise in terms of both development but also supporting public investment. Um, I sound kind of like an anarchist and like I'm anti-government. -gov not, I'm not for a second. I just think we need to be clear about what government could or should do and what we should do. Um, so in that space, there's, there's an incredible document, which I don't know if anyone here knows because it never really 
got implemented, but it was called the Local Livability Study for the City of Melbourne. It was done in like 2013. You, you know, you're familiar with this? Yeah. So this document looked at what if we reoriented the central city back to what it was, right? Because keep in mind, it wasn't a CBD in this kind of American idea. It was the whole city <laughs> when it was first founded. It just happened to change its function post-war because of cars to become a place of business. It was zoned for that. So off the back of postcode 3000, it's like, let's solve a rates problem and get more people in the city by having more housing. But we then didn't provide all the public facilities that were needed to support that life. So you have people living in QV development travelling to, you know, Southern Cross to go to Coles. You have people, you know, using the city at, not as neighbourhoods but using it as a kind of this single entity. So this conception of local livability, of these kind of micro radiuses around the city with which we have to provide a certain degree of services, not conceive of it as this one giant geometry, I think is a huge part of that. And I'd really recommend anyone look up that document because it's just a fantastic piece of work and it's probably still online. So I'm happy to share that through Lily and Woody. But I think that's a, there's a really big sort of answer um, somewhere in there. A little bit nervous here. Um, yeah, I've sort of recently gone back to study building design and construction up in Ballarat and it's sort of changing in the 20, 19 years I've been there. But in my studies and learning to, to go over a set of residential plans, I've got to go over the building regs, the part five siting, and I've got to conform with, as Andy and the chap in the beard, I couldn't remember, talk uh, about Rory. The, 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 Rory, the developers building all this, and I try to ask my teachers, how are these developers getting everything passed with respective councils, Melton everywhere? when I've got to conform and make sure my design, and after I do all the permeability and the percentages and all that, what I'm left to actually build my design on is not really great. But these developers seem to build big homes on these small pockets, slam them up to the boundaries with no side and offsets. And yeah, how are, they, how are these developers getting their designs, all these houses you see, passed by councils? And I asked my teacher, Blunt, is there some sort of corruption check, but what's happening? Yeah, thanks. I wish it were that juicy. Um, I mean, maybe we need to ask, the problem you're talking about, are you talking specifically about growth areas? So single houses on plots in a growth area? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, um, yeah, when I have to go, you know, my legislation for my residential design, I've got to go through, you know, I think it's, the building rates, you know, part 5, 2016 of siting. I've got to site my house and I've got to have so much sort of area. But it still is. Yeah, I was going to I remember back in the day when I used to do houses for yeah. rich people, um, if your block is larger than 500 square metres, you don't need a planning permit. You can do what you like, knock yourself out. And that's one of those loopholes that um, allows you to get away with what you're talking about. So I, I think that sounds like yeah. it could be... Well, it. Sp more, yeah. more specifically in a, in a growth, that's definitely true in the suburbs. In a growth area context, they're comprehensively master plan neighbourhoods. The waffle pods, oh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, so essentially they... Um, no one approves the individual homes apart from a private building surveyor. So they are automated. So those entire neighbourhoods... The plots are rolled out, the council approves the lots, the public streets, the street trees, the parks, etc. And then the individual plots are sort of free to go. Um, the reason for that is really effective lobbying. So um, the project home builders um, have a huge command over groups like the Housing Institute um, of Australia, so HIA or master builders, etc. Um, this is about the connection between the construction industry as a huge kind of... Um, political power um, and how they're really effectively represented in how they present their interest to development. So the speed of these homes that are built supports the availability of jobs in the economy, um, principally masculine jobs, not care-based, um, and they also, you know, allow this kind of lubricant of this development to continue and promote growth. So there's a sort... I think you'll find... There's a pattern you're touching upon. I think that the individual phenomenon you're talking about sits in something much bigger, which is that we tend to regulate more heavily where votes are to be lost and regulate less heavily where they're not to be lost. Now, no one loses votes for a McMansion in Pakenham. No one loses votes for Shell House having a tower built on it, to be perfectly honest. But my God, you'll lose votes if you build a townhouse in your backyard in Stonington. So... This is why the kind of geography of the city reflects that balance between lobbying interests and the community 
And the Stonington example is not a bad one because it's actually showing you the inverse. It's showing you where the lobbying interest of individual builder developers is usurped by the effectiveness of community lobbying. The outcome might not be what we want for the city, but it's a good demonstration of these power dynamics anyway. Thank you. Um, so are there any other questions about no? Um, well, I think we might just end it there then. Um, Thank you to the panellists um, and thank you to the audience for coming. Um, hope you enjoyed the discussion. I certainly did. Um, and come back and, you know, attend more M Pavilion events um, for more discussions like this and various other things. Um, yeah, thanks for coming. Really, thanks, Woody. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you.